Welcome, everyone. It is Adrienne Lopez here, the Integrative Awareness Coach, and I just want to welcome you to the first Integrative Awareness Quantum Summit. I am so glad that you're here and you stopped by to take a listen to our guests today from multiple fields of expertise who are here to share their input and wisdom about the construction of the self and its connection to reality. And it's a holistic approach to health, wellness, and success on every level of your life. So today I'm excited to introduce our first guest, which is Jeff Carrera. Welcome, Jeff. I wanna tell you a little bit about him before we get started. So Jeff Carrera is a meditation teacher, a mystical philosopher, and an author who works with a growing number of people throughout the world. He is a teacher that offers retreats and courses guiding individuals in the form of meditation that he refers to as the art of conscious contentment. Through a simple and effective technique, he has led thousands of people on the journey beyond the confines of fear and self-concern into an expansive, liberated awareness that is our true home. As a philosopher, Jeff is interested in defining a new way of being in the world that will move us from our current paradigm of separation and isolation into an emerging paradigm of unity and wholeness. In his books and his lectures, he explores revolutionary ideas in the domain of spirituality, consciousness, and human development. He creates courses and programs that encourage people to question their most foundational experiences of reality until previously held assumptions fall away, leaving space for a dramatically new understanding to emerge. Jeff is passionate about the potential that ideas have to shape how we re perceive reality and how we live together. His enthusiasm for learning is infectious and he has taught at colleges and universities throughout the world. In addition, I just want to say that Jeff is the author of numerous books. I think uh, I, want, I want to say over 40 publications that I counted. I have had the joy of interacting with two of those uh, uh, books that you published that I want to speak with you a little bit more in depth today. So uh, as a life coach and energy healer and a um, hypnotherapist and a person that works with people to overcome their limiting thoughts, um, I have for a long time really been uh, looking for a way to articulate uh, this process of coming into the fullness of the self individually for each person. So when I found your book entitled The Soul of the New Self, where you mentioned, and I quote, that a soul of a new consciousness is being born right now. And it is, I believe you said, an attractive energy that is calling a new way of being, a new self into being. And I really liked this metaphor because it uh, is reminiscent of, for me, the fullness of the creative process as a human. A lot of times we go out in the world and we use force and we use our will to try to shape and, and um, create what we want. But there's so many different levels. So I was hoping today <laughs> that you might speak about a little bit more about what you mean about a soul being the soul of a new consciousness being called in right now. Mm. Well, I think if in you know to keep it simple, <clears throat> many people, you know, people like us, people that I work with, people that you work with, many many people feel very passionately that there's a different way to be human than what we see, right? So we, we look at the world and we see the problems that exist. And we see that the, the root cause of those problems is a kind of, a, a, I don't want to blame anyone, but it's, yeah. you know, the, the, the current sense of self is just very self-centered. It's, it's, you know, if you think about it, uh, this individuated sense of self, right? The sense of being me that was born in this body on my birthday has the name Jeff. Yeah. You know, will live until this body finishes and that's it. That because that sense of self becomes the lens through which you see everything. 
And inevitably, you end up doing things or you end up privileging things that are going to support that sense of self. And when I say a new self wants to develop, it's because so many people today are realizing we can't really see ourselves. We, we can't have a sense of self that sees itself as fundamentally separate from the rest of the planet, from other species, from other people. We have to, we have to begin to create a larger sense of self that recognizes that we are one. Uh, and, you know, this is a perennial message. So when I say there's a, there's a self that wants to be born, I think it's been being born for a long, long time, <laughs> you know, and will continue to be bo born. It probably goes through all kinds of stages. But there's a, there's a way in which many people today recognize that there's something about the way we're trained to see ourselves, the lens that we use to look at reality, that's fundamentally not working. Uh, and so they feel this passionate desire to expand personally into something greater. You know, when, when, when someone starts their spiritual search, it's always because they recognize that more is possible. You know, and, and this can happen in a thousand different ways. You know, some people, some people just hit rock bottom in some form or another, and they go, okay, there's got to be more than this. Uh, you know, other people have some kind of spontaneous revelation of the divine and go, oh my God, is that possible? <laughs> you know, yeah. but in, in some form or another, there's a recognition that so much more is possible than what we've been taught. And then we don't feel comfortable anymore in, in the confines of the familiar. Suddenly, you know, there's a great, great metaphor um, I once read. They, uh, there's something called May's brightness. Hmm. Now, this is, you know, I read this. Yeah, it may I, or may not be true, that. but I'm going to pass it on. Thank you. <clears throat> right, so it's a great, it, I got it from a spiritual teacher named E.J. Gold. Uh, hmm. And he worked in, in the science field at one point. And he, and he said that, I don't know if this is an official term, but they, they were doing experiments with, you know, rodents and mazes to see if they could learn, you know, could they learn how to navigate the maze more quickly? And they would rearrange the maze and put food in different places and they were trials and timing how long it would take. Yeah. And what, what they would find is that some percentage of the rodents in these trials would suddenly realize that they were in a trap. And it would from dawn that on them. point, yeah. yes, they, they kind of, wait a minute. <laughs> And from that point forward, they wouldn't do anything else except try to jump out. Like they became unuseful for the trials because they wouldn't chase the food anymore. Yeah. Uh, and what was so beautiful about that, um, what was so beautiful about that metaphor is that that's how we are. You know, there's, there's a certain number of people, a certain percentage of people who recognize that somehow they're, they're living within confines that are artificial and they start to feel suffocated and then they want to break free of that. And so that experience of breaking free, you could look at it as my experience of wanting to break out of the confines. That's, yes. that's a perfectly legitimate one way to look at it. But you can also look at it as th this higher possibility is calling us, is saying, no, you know, there's more than that. You can be more than that. You know, and of course, that's us. That's some higher potential us calling ourselves yes. into a higher being. So, so that's you know, roughly what I mean by that, that phrase. Well, it really resonated with me because... A lot of times it's like, um, well, I kind of use this description of like, you know, how the birds know to fly south for the winter and how the <laughs> butterflies know how to fly thousands of miles every year for their migration. It's like, it's not logical. It's just this pull, right? And you call mm -hmm. it an attractive energy. It's like almost, I feel personally that I've been being pulled to it. 
and it's not logical. It's not a conscious process. It's just like, like consciousness calling itself to expand yes. into bigger mm -hmm. and bigger expressions of itself. And, um, and it's, just, you know, it's like, you can't get it through, you can't get to it through the conceptual mind. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm sure, you know, from reading your books, uh, which I want to talk to you about your next book, um, about the implications of quantum physics, is uh, that for me personally, I was a classroom teacher for 17 years and taught, you know, very, con you know, in a very conceptual world. But um, that that is such a limited level of education that I couldn't participate in it anymore because I was just like, oh, my gosh, what about all the different levels of our being that need to be cultivated and supported and um, seen? So uh, so it's definitely not something that is conceptual. In fact, our conceptual mind seems to be limiting us. And I loved um, in your book. It's called The Spiritual Implications of Quantum Physics, Reflections on the Nature of Science, Reality, and Paradigm Shifts. <laughs> it's a good good title there. Um, I was reading the story about when you were uh, an engineer and you were doing all of these like um, detailed uh, projects with these machines and these lasers and there was, um, people were trying to figure out why the machine wasn't working, why it kept getting copper everywhere. And then eventually you found, uh, took it apart piece by piece and found that there was actually a penny in the machine. <laughs> and That's none right. of those scientists with all of their intellect could have ever foreseen the penny in the machine. And so I thought that was a perfect, um, perfect allegory, perfect tale of what happens to the intellect. It gets trapped inside of itself. So, um, one thing in the introduction of that book, you said even after a hundred years of discoveries in quantum physics and the quantum field, that should really have radical implications for how we view the self and how we relate to reality, which just haven't really affected most people's relationship every day to reality. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about why do you think that is? And um, mm. you mentioned, this is a, a two-part question. So um, so why do you think that is? And in the book, you also refer to um, like, what is a paradigm shift and what actually uh, is the resistance to creating a, you know, a massive paradigm shift in regards to the self and how we relate to reality. Absolutely. Um, uh, first of all, in terms of quantum physics, I mean, the very simple answer is that classic Newtonian physics, you know, works at the scale of being a person. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it works. So, so there's not a lot of motivation. I mean, the places where quantum physics does affect, has affected, is, is at those edges. You know, when I, when I was an engineer working in laser manufacturing, you know, quantum physics comes into play at that level because we were making lasers that were just a few millionths of an inch wide, you know, so. Yes. So then, so then at that level, you need to deal with it. But at the level of driving your car down the street, you know, Newtonian physics works great. And that's, that's a big part of the reason. Yeah. Um, and still, uh, it seems curious to me that these utterly, you know, paradigm destroying revelations, you know, so, so I'm not the kind of, you know, I studied physics as an undergraduate. I'm, I'm not the kind of person, I don't try to draw, I think it's not real. I don't think it's very possible to draw a lot of conclusions based on quantum theory at this point. Yeah. You know, outside of the quantum world, you know, how those quantum phenomena that happen at the very, very infinitesimally small, uh, you know, a, a part of life yeah. affect the macro world we live in. I don't really know. You know, but they certainly show us that 
for instance, our conceptions of time, space, and matter, the familiar ones, they, they can't be right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they, I, you know, how, what might be right, who knows? But they definitely tell us. And I just feel like, you know, it's, it's a little bit like uh, at some point. Oh, I, okay. I'm going to give you a personal story. I okay, remember going. <laughs> so th this is like the, this is one of my pet peeves, which is yeah. this, this whole creation myth called the Big Bang. Theory, yeah. Right. I, I went into a, a, a period of time where I tried to research this theory of the Big Bang. Yeah. Uh, and and I read books pro and con. Um, Very good of and, you. <laughs> and all you can really all you can say is that the Big Bang theory doesn't really work. Right. As a theory, it's loaded yeah. with holes. You have to fudge all over the place to make it work, and you have to speculate about unseen sources of matter and all kinds of stuff yeah yeah so it's, it's not a very sound theory and it's the best theory we have you know so yeah. so i get at that. the same time yeah at the same time but i went i remember going to a uh, to, to a science museum and and it was a uh you know one of those star show the shows in the stars you know the, oh, the okay. planetarium uh and and they had the they had a voiceover by Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, with his very deep physics voice. voice. Yeah. And and he started by saying, "The universe started in a big bang." And I remember I thought, "You shouldn't tell kids that. You that's a theory. <laughs> you know, our best guess is that." But you know, a lot. The fundamental issue that I'm trying to get at in that book, and I'm using quantum theory to, to as an example of it, yeah. uh, is is the difference between science and scientism. Uh, so, so scientism is this uh, belief that the, that that the facts and the theories that science comes up with are true. And, and, you know, so, so I often say in, in our world, when we say something is scientifically proven, that means really true. Right now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And I like to point out that besides the things that are currently scientifically proven, everything that has been scientifically proven for the last, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years has actually turned out to be false. Yes. And so these will be too. Uh, but there's a way in which science has become the arbiter of truth and 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 look i'm i love science i studied physics i mean you know who wants to go back to like the middle ages you know yeah but you've me. realized it's it's weaknesses yeah yeah and you want to you want to hold science in in the in the true spirit of science which is we we continually come up with theories yeah and then we explore those theories and then we hold on to them until a better theory happens so this gets me to part two of your question which was about paradigms right because yes, yes. so the term paradigm was very much articulated it wasn't coined by but very much articulated at least in in the american lexicon in the 1950s yeah. in a book called the structures of scientific revolutions oh okay uh, i didn't know that which Thank is, you. It is a magnificent book. It's a bit hard. It's a little hard to read. But Say not it again. Impossible. What's the title? It's called The Structures of Scientific Revolutions. Got it. And it's by uh, Thomas Kuhn. Um, oh, is that the book that you include in the in your book? I'm yes. Sure, okay. Yes. I, I, I wrote quite a bit about it. Yeah. And basically what Kuhn's realized, because because he was a historian of science, he, he realized if you go through the history of science, what you see is that science operates in a certain way for some amount of time, decades, maybe hundreds of years. You yeah. know. And then there's a major shift in which the, the whole foundation of science changes in, in very fundamental ways. And at that point, everything that came before is now seen as wrong. <laughs> like, and and you know, the, the classic example is that when Ptolemy, the, the ancient astronomer had created a whole system in which the the, uh, the 
the sun went around the earth. Right? Okay. It was, the, it was the, the earth was the center of the universe and everything went around the earth. Uh, and then, and they had to do all these weird things because that's not the way it actually looked. But anyway, that was the theory. That theory lasted for about a thousand years or something. I mean, it was, this was a very successful scientific theory uh, and it was very useful. But then Copernicus came along and he said, wait a minute, no, no, actually the sun is the center. Mm -hmm. you know? and, yeah. and all of that old science is, it was, is now just wrong. <laughs> just, yeah. just, you know, but, but what uh, Kuhn realizes when people write scientific history, they try to make it look like, or they make it sound like everything, everything that emerges is somehow a natural outcome of what came before. And his thesis was, it's not actually a natural outcome. It's some, you know, for some things are a natural outcome, but, but occasionally, everything changes and it is not a natural outcome yeah so and basically so, it's a nicely constructed narrative after the fact right which which is is done to preserve our sense of security so yeah. we feel like science works you know and, and basically he says in terms of paradigm shifts there's i think he he lays out three ways that paradigms shift yeah one is because something is observed that shouldn't be possible Right. So in terms of our personal paradigms, that's often the case, right? You have some yeah, yeah. kind of experience that just shouldn't be possible. So that causes you to question everything. Uh, this happens in, in science as well. Someone, an, another reason is that there is some problem that everybody's trying to solve and it just cannot be solved. And the fact that it cannot be solved makes people go, wait a minute. There must be something wrong in the way we're looking at this. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, like hello. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, that instigates it. And the third, which is in some ways the more romantic one, <laughs> is that someone has some kind of an almost mystical revelation or intuition about reality that's dramatically different, and they just will not give up on it. So, yes. and, and of course, Einstein's theory of relativity is the classic example. You know, because he kind of had this intuitive realization of, yeah. of relativity. And everybody, you know, nobody understood him. Most people thought he was crazy. And, and then over time, he, you know, revolutionized physics and was a huge part of the whole, uh, you know, interestingly enough, he was a huge part of the, the new physics that then became quantum physics, even though he personally never got on board with quantum physics. Yeah. Uh, he had a hard time with it, but that just shows you it's very hard to give up a paradigm and embrace a new one because of the, the fundamental level of change that it, it would require. It would require mm -hmm. for people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, so it's like this, um, this insistence of the, of the intellect to have it. Well, and make you right. You want to have a sense of control and safety and like the world makes sense, right? But um, it's almost like it's holding on to that at the cost of what's possible. And I know change happens very slowly, <laughs> um, but you know, it can happen also in an instant and often does, you know, like one day it's one way and the next day everyone's just like, ah, it like catches like wildfire. So, um, so to follow up on that, um, I get what you're saying about like, you know, every day quantum physics doesn't really affect our sense of reality when we're driving down the street. And so if it's not an immediate effect on our comfort or what we're doing, we're not gonna pay attention to it. But um, at the same time, it's like um, coming to the realization that, um, I think I'm trying to remember who said it that, um, and it's related to the idea of quantum entanglement. Um, the idea that space time, I'm trying to remember who said it. I think it was, do you know Bob Bruner? He, um, he does a strange universe. No, I don't think I do. Yeah, you check him out. He's got like, he does this, I don't know if it's daily or weekly. It's on public radio and he does like a, like a two minute little description of 
astronomy and new discoveries on planets. He's, a, I think he's an astrophysicist to tell you the truth or an astronomer. I can't tell you which, but um, he was saying um, in his book, in his talks that uh, space time is actually a construct of animal perception, including humans, <laughs> and that it's not an absolute, right? It's just a product of our consciousness. And so, um, so I was sharing this idea with some people and they're like, well, of course, space time is, you know, is existing and it's affecting everything that we do. And so I was trying to get at that piece, like, well, how did Bob Brenner get to the point where he was saying that space time is a construct of animal um, perception? And uh, then it came, it came to my mind that the whole idea of quantum entanglement is when you have two subatomic particles that are in very different areas. You, if you um, treat one particle with a certain solution or condition, it automatically like affects the other particle in another region. So there is no space-time at a subatomic level. <laughs> and so fundamentally, we are subatomic, like our bodies and everything we see is made out of subatomic material. And so um, I guess for me, it's like, um, like my mind <laughs> has this desire to like find meaning in that, like to connect those two, like, um, like that's the missing link, right? If, if, mm. if we were able to, or if I was able to articulate that, that would have some sort of impact on people. But what are mm. your thoughts on that? Well, you know, quantum entanglement is one of those amazing, you know, inexplicable <laughs> phenomena, you know, yeah. of, of quantum theory. And again, because it happens at a level that's so small that, that, nobody can really relate to in any kind of physical sense. You know, you get some particle over here that's spinning and then this one spins, you know, you change the yeah. spin of one and the spin of the other change and they can be on opposite sides of the galaxy and it still happens instantaneously. You know, it sounds kind of amazing, but okay, nobody can relate to it. Uh, but I, I often say, you know, imagine if you were in a, in a basketball court and there was a basketball sitting on the floor on the other side of the room and one on this side of the room. And you picked this one up and that one went up too. Right? Then you yeah. freak out. Yeah. <laughs> you think, how, how could that possibly, because it happened at our size. Yeah. So that it was, it would be, you know, then you couldn't ignore it. You know, you'd want to do something about it. Um, That's true. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's an amazing phenomenon. Uh, what it means, what it tells us is that our, as our, sorry. No worries. Uh, our notions of, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, so in terms of uh, you know, something like quantum entanglement, it's hard to know exactly what it means at, at our size. Yes. And, and because the world we live in isn't really affected by that, we don't really see basketballs moving simultaneously. Uh, we, don't, we don't worry about it. And you, you could say, yeah, why worry about quantum physics, right? This is kind of the, the attitude. Why worry about it? Because yeah. it doesn't really affect us. So this is this is a very important point about paradigm shifts. It, okay, the reason it doesn't affect us is because we never knew about it. So it isn't built into the world that we created, you know? So, but if we started thinking in quantum physical terms, you know, in, in the terms of quantum physics, if, if we started creating at that level, the world would change, yes. you know, and, and this is what, this is what, what some of the implications I got from Thomas Kuhn. Yeah. So the way a paradigm paradigm works is essentially a paradigm is a set of ideas about what is real. And, and the paradigm tells everybody that lives in it, what is real. It then uh, essentially shapes your perception so that you see those things as real. And then it introduces a logic that tells you because you see it as real, it must be real. Yeah, right? it's so, a feedback so loop. It's, it's a feedback loop. It, it, it tells you what's real. It shapes your perception so that you experience that as real. And then it tells you that because you experience it as real, it must be real. It convinces you. And so unless something happens that shouldn't be possible that you can't ignore, yeah. like 
you know, UFOs land on the planet or something, or there's some problem you've been trying to solve forever and it just cannot be solved. Yeah. Or you have some revelation, it's not going to change. And and that's why, you know, Max Planck said the way paradigms shift in science is that all the old scientists have to die. Uh, you know, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> so, that, so that the new ones can take over. But that's too slow, you know. Yeah. This because what we lose it's if life. we if we yeah. move that slowly is we we lose creative potential. And right now, the world needs creative potential. We have major problems that are going to need majorly creative solutions. And and we can't afford to be overly conservative in our thinking. We have to be willing to let go and, and embrace ideas that may seem bizarre. Or, you know, every amazing new, every, everything that became the norm was bizarre at one time was out of the question, yes. Yes, absolutely. So this is where I feel very passionately that uh, one of the most important things our world needs right now is increased creative potential. We need to really encourage people to be willing to be creative and, and to not hold on to the way they currently see things. Yes, I wanna say two things about what you just shared. One, one, it's, uh, as you were speaking, I was just, um, got that, um, if somebody's not aware of something like a resource, then they can't access it or its potential, and then they can't co-create with it. Right. And so it's like realizing that perhaps really reality is much more expansive than we've ever been allowed to believe. And so our sense of self got shrunk down into this really you know, mechanistic, um, Newtonian, uh, mm-hmm. you know, perspective that is, um, I don't want to say it's the cause of a lot of our problems now, but like you were saying at the very beginning of your interview that um, it, it, it breeds a, a sense of separation from an isolation from the world, that we're separate beings and but, um, that who we are and what we do what we think what we believe doesn't have a direct impact on reality itself um and you know i don't know if that was intentional or you know just part of our learning curve and evolution as humanity um so that was the first thing and the second thing just went out of my mind but (laughs) what i wanted to it'll come back hopefully but if it doesn't i just I wanted to to ask you about the title because you talk about quantum physics, you talk about the history of science and scientism, um, but there's also in the title of your book the spiritual implications. Yes. Yes. So would you say a little bit about um, what you meant, what you mean by the spiritual implications of quantum physics? Yes. The the spiritual to me the spiritual implications of quantum physics have to do with the fact that more or less what you just said. Uh, yeah. That, that the, the, you know, the tried and true discoveries of quantum physics. You know, we're not talking about something that was discovered yesterday once. This yeah. is, you know, 100 years old and it's been, you know, high school kids can do these experiments, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and, and get the same results. There's no question about the result. <laughs> you know, so... What are the spiritual implications of of things like uh, quantum entanglement or the wave particle duality? You know, yes. The implications are that that we do not live in a world of three dimensional space and linear time. That's that is not the world we live in. You know, that's that's a perception that we have that's very useful in many ways but it is not the limit of what's real and that we can expand into the greater reality, which is somehow non-local, meaning that every place and every other place is one. Yeah. You know, non-local means there's, right. Non-local means there's only one point. Yeah. You know? And, and it's also, uh, and also where, where you realize that time 
time is not an absolute, you know, time is, time works in some, some places for some things, but it is, it is not an inherent quality of reality, right? So then that, that, the spiritual implication of that is then what are we? Because I just thought I was like a being in a body walking around on a planet in a three-dimensional universe, living through a line of time. And suddenly I, I see, maybe I'm not just that. Maybe there's much more. Um, now, you mentioned this idea, uh, Bruner, I think was the person. Yeah, Bob Bruner. Mm -hmm. Bob Bruner. And uh, he was saying that time and space are a product of animal uh, perception. Of, of, mm -hmm. of perception. So philosophically, I love the philosophy of idealism. Uh, and and the, the basic, you know, I don't want to defend it overly academically, but it can be so helpful to yeah. understand because you hear something like time and space are a product of the mind. That doesn't make any sense. You know, look at what is obviously true. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, I say to people, and, and think about when you're dreaming at night and you're dreaming and, and say you're dreaming and you're a ship captain and you're on an ocean, right? And you're on a voyage across the sea. Yes. And, and if I were to ask you in the dream, you know, you would say this, there's time and space here. There's a vast expanse. But if I'm to look at you in the bed sleeping, where is the ship and the ocean and anything else? It's all created by the mind. You know, it's, it, it, and we accept that for dreams because we wake up in the morning and we realize, oh yeah, I wasn't really on a ship. That was just a, that was just my mind creating an experience of being on a ship. Yeah. But, but what people like Bob Bruner are telling you is that's what this is too. This is my mind creating this experience of, of three dimensions of space and time. And What's the real reality beyond that? I don't know. I mean, this is not new information either. This, you know, Immanuel Kant said this again 150 years ago. We experience the phenomenal world, which is which is filtered consensus. and shaped by the mind, mm -hmm. right? And and consensus, and and the noumenal world, which is you know the real reality underneath. We have no idea what that is, and so. To me, the spiritual implications of quantum physics is that it can really give us an opportunity to viscerally experience the fact that we have no idea what's real. And yeah. some people would find that terrifying. I find it exhilarating. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> you know, who knows? Yeah. I, I love that. That's, um, that's awesome. I get really excited about that. Um, I know as, you know, I've, I started meditating some 22 years ago just because I was like, you know, I don't know how I'm going to manage this, right? I'm going to have to find some way to manage this. And so I started meditating. And um, through my years of meditating, um, you know, sometimes I just assume everyone has access to that inner resource that I've been cultivating for 22 years. Um, but they don't you know, mm -hmm. and it's a, the constant distraction of being pulled out into the material world of the senses as being the primary reality. And, um, you know, if somebody tried, I don't know, maybe I've always been a philosopher. I've always been an explorer of like being and what is the self like my whole life. Like mm. <laughs> I was just like checking everybody out going, oh my gosh. Um, so I was drawn to it naturally, but, um, but for many people, you know, that it's like to go within, there's like a resistance. And mm -hmm. um, there's also like a fear, you know, and for a lot of people, it's, um, they're so attached to their construction of reality that they'll have a war about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, for me, the biggest hurdle is, um, de-arming people um, and you can't really and you can't really do that I mean people have to do that themselves but we right. can be a catalyst for it and we can be um, guides of it and we can hold it in our own consciousness um, and when we do it affects all consciousness because it's like the field um, but I'm wondering 
um, you were saying, until we have a real felt, like palatable experience of that in our body, it's not real. And for me, like, I've had that because I've sat with it for many years. And so as a, a life coach, um, as someone that has people in front of them with these struggles <laughs> in their lives that they, they're trying to overcome, it's, it's like creating practices and tools that allow people to have a real felt experience of it in their body and to make it safe for them to do that. Because a lot of times when we start doing that, we have so much unprocessed, unconscious material, it can be very overwhelming and scary. So I wanted to, I know that you are a meditation teacher as well as a philosopher and <laughs> an author. Um, what are some techniques and tools that you've developed in your own process through, uh, I think you call it the art of uh, conscious contentment? That's right. Yes. The art of conscious contentment. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> which is how I teach meditation. I, I also talk about it sometimes as the, the practice of no problem. Uh, and I, you know, I always tell people I can teach them how to do this practice in about five seconds, you know, because I'll just say, okay, close your eyes. And as soon as I say, the meditation has begun, don't make a problem out of anything, and then we'll sit for a while, and then when it's done, you can make a problem out of anything you want. Uh, so, and then I'll say, okay, the meditation has begun, the meditation is over. I give them about five seconds, and I say, did you have a problem? No one ever has a problem. And I said, then, then you just extend that for about an hour. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> you just do exactly the same thing. And then the interesting thing about the practice of no problem is you start to see that for a very short time, it's easy. But then you start doubting whether you're doing it right or you start having experiences you don't want to have or you don't think are good or you don't think. And you start to realize, well, it's really hard to just be okay with the way things are. Yeah. And if, you know, I mean, it, that's just helpful to human beings, right? Just to learn how to be okay with the way things are. It's yeah. very valuable just in life. But spiritually speaking, it's essential because where we want to go spiritual is beyond the familiar. And, and we have to kind of let go of the familiar concerns. We have to, they, they can't be... We can't be so, we can't be gripping them so hard that, that we can't escape, you know? Yes. And, and so if we learn to relax, we learn to just be with things the way they are. If we, you, then you start to see, oh, look at my mind, you know? My mind's always going to have a problem. It never stops having a problem. But I don't have to have a problem with that. And, yes. And then, you know, what happens when you stop identifying with your mind's problems and your mind's thinking and your mind's planning and your mind's everything? What happens is it all gets kind of boring. Yeah. Right? And then you stop paying attention. Where does your attention go then? It goes into like the much more mysterious realms of higher potential. Yeah. And, and that, that's what you want to do. You want to learn to relax your fixation on the familiar so that your attention will drift into the extraordinary i like that uh, i really like that yeah it's it's i i've been teaching that way for 20 years and it just uh, makes sense and it's simple it's very simple it's it's you know the hardest thing i always say the hardest thing in terms of this kind of meditation what's what's difficult about it is that it's hard to let it be as simple as it actually is. You know, we, we wanna get involved and we wanna make it more complex and we want some kind of problem to solve. And, you know, we wanna be on our heroic struggle. And, and all I keep saying is, no, just relax and be okay. Yeah. Just be content, you know, even if you feel bad, be content, you know. Yeah. It's life. Sometimes it feels bad, <laughs> you know, that's how it works. Sometimes life, it is uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I um, have 
I have experimented with different ways of explaining it to people. And everyone's different, but that sounds like a really, um, like you, you hit all the audience with that. Just like, stop making a problem. Just let it go, just release it. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, my last question for you today is re regarding to like accessing the state uh, beyond the struggle, let's say, beyond the problem, and then you release it. And then when you release it, it's like, you know, when you have something in your hand you're holding on to, you can't re receive anything else, right? So when you let go of all that worrying, all that problem solving, all of that struggle, you know, you can pick it up later when you're done if you want, you know, um, <clears throat> but what happens is like consciousness opens to possibilities that weren't available before. Yes. And yeah, so this is like what's happened with, you know, paradigm shifts of like when Einstein, right, just let go, he just let go of everything, then the answer came to him. So I, um, I really think that this is the gateway to the creativity, which you were referring to, that's required right now for humanity in order to make it through this rough patch, let's say, <laughs> that we're having. So um, I know that you've written several books on creativity and mysticism and art and that sort of thing. So um, I'm just curious if you have anything to add regarding um, accessing that level of like creativity that's required for us. And I, I do think that the ability to you know, obviously this is a big question and it has all, all many dimensions. What I feel moved to tell you is a story. Oh, uh, good. <laughs> I because, love stories. Because <laughs> creativity happens at all kinds of levels. There's the yeah. huge levels of creativity that the world needs right now. There's also the creativity that we experience every day. Yes. And, and, and the ways in which we get stuck in our thinking. Um, and, and often when I teach meditation as, you know, let everything be as it is and don't make a problem out of anything, then yep. people will think, oh, but you can't do that. That's spiritual bypassing. You know, you're, you're, you're avoiding the real challenges of life. And I always say, not if you're really doing it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know I mean, of, of course you can be spiritual bypassing. You know, you can, everybody can find ways to bypass, you know, uh, if you want to. But I, I use this example, uh, some years ago, my wife was in a bad car accident. And by the way, she's okay. Good, uh, good. But, but all I heard on the phone from the hospital was your wife was in a head-on collision with an 18-wheeler. You need to come to the hospital right away. Yeah. And I said, how is she? And I said, we can't give that information over the phone. So I, I was in no shape to drive. My friend drove me to the hospital and I was freaking out. Yeah. This was about 10 years ago. I'd already been meditating for 20 years, you know. Yeah. And, and my body was shaking and my mind was coming up with images of like the worst case scenarios. And I was like in a panic, but there was a little space, you know? And, and so that little space is a little opportunity for a creative response. Uh, and what happened in that space was a question appeared, which was if she's dead or maimed or in a coma, will life be bad? And the answer that came to me was, no, life will still be magnificent. Your life might be bad, but life will be, is, 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 will be unaffected by that. Yes. And I realized like life is good no matter what happens. And suddenly my body was still shaking, my mind was crazy, but it wasn't me anymore. I was like, okay, this is all, this is, of course, this is me freaking out because I don't know what's going to happen. But up until that moment, all I could do was deal with my panic. Yeah. But at that moment, suddenly there was space. There was space for creative response. And I started to think, okay, how do I want to show up at the hospital? You know, I don't want to show up a panicked mess. I want to show up ready to be completely available, to be as helpful as possible to whatever I find there, you know? Yes. And I want to be there for the doctors and the nurses and anybody else. I want to be a positively contributing member of the team. I don't want yes. to just be a mess. And so, you know, I got there and 
you know, it turned out she was very badly hurt, but you know, she recovered and it looked, it looked like she could recover at that point. And I just wanted to be present, like asking questions and being supportive. And I didn't want to look freaked out when I saw how she looked and, you know, and, and yeah, you wanted and to I be just, present. Yeah. So, so the idea is that this kind of letting go isn't a way to escape life. It's actually a way to be available for, to have novel responses to life. And if, you know, you can imagine that at a personal level, like the one I just described. Yes. You can imagine it at bigger levels. You know, if we can relax deeply, there'll be space for creative response. And then novel ideas will occur. Novel, uh, novelty will appear in that space. Uh, and so, and I think, you know, like I said earlier, I think, expanding our capacity for creativity is just an essential it's essential for the well our personal well-being yeah it, it's essential for our planet you know it's just essential bottom line exactly <laughs> cool yeah i um i like the way that you frame that a lot of times people think of creativity they think of you know really successful artists or you know musicians and that i'm not creative at all but it's an innate um resource that we have moment to moment to actually co-create our reality um so at the fundamental level life is creative moment to moment by what we're telling ourselves about what's possible Absolutely. yeah and that is beautiful my friend <laughs> well, thank you so much thank you jeff for joining me today it's a pleasure meeting you and hearing your ideas um so thank you so much for sharing them and agreeing to be on my first summit. It's exciting. So um, I'm sure we'll be in touch. And um, until next time, take care. Fantastic. Congratulations, <laughs> by the way, on your summit. It was oh, delightful to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you I'll talk much. to you later. Bye for now. Okay. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Thank you.